ending down to the present day, Amazon has sought to maintain what Jeff Bezos calls a day one mentality. The company is always trying to disrupt old ways of doing things. Some of its biggest bets have flopped. Remember the Fire Phone? Others, such as free two-day shipping and cloud computing, have been transformative. During the dot-com crash, Amazon nearly collapsed. By 2017, Bezos was the richest man in the world. Along the way, the company has been hard on its employees, and it's drawn plenty of criticism, but it has been a boon to consumers. In one of his books on the firm, the journalist Brad Stone refers to Amazon's religious refusal to violate the trust of customers in any way. Late last month, the Federal Trade Commission sued Amazon for antitrust violations. The suit dresses itself in the garb of contemporary antitrust law. It makes technical economic arguments about higher prices and lower quality. Those arguments will be our focus today. But I can't shake the suspicion that this lawsuit, brought by this FTC chair, Lena Khan, is at root an attempt to punish Amazon for its zealous commitment to taking big risks, disrupting markets, and pleasing consumers. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. I'm joined today by Jeff Manny, president and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics. Jeff joined me recently to discuss the Google search antitrust trial, and we had so much fun, we thought we'd do it again. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks, Corbin. Great to be here. So there's a lot of speculation about what this lawsuit would entail. There's been a lot of attacks on various Amazon practices. A lot of people don't like how they market and sell books. A lot of people have complained about their in-house brands, this, that, and the other. But actually, we've ended up with a lawsuit that is, this is relatively speaking, but pretty focused on two theories of harm. And we'll get into those in more detail later, but for now, it will suffice. There's basically a price parity argument or most favored nation clause, whatever you want to call it, where the FTC is blaming Amazon for requiring sellers to offer their lowest price on Amazon, or anyway, not to offer a lower price elsewhere. And then we have the uh, the fulfillment requirements that certain benefits are attached to using Amazon's logistics services. But before we dive into those in more detail, if it's all right with you, I'd actually like mm -hmm. to start where we ended on our Google episode with the market definition, because a lot of these arguments are irrelevant, fall away like sand, if you ask me, if you don't establish that Amazon has market power. And there's a lot of debate here. Amazon will tell you that they are some, you know, they're, they're what, like three or 5% of all retail in the United States. And even I am not sure that you get to compare yourself to literally every entity that is selling anything in the United States. But meanwhile, if you look at online retail, even there, although they're very successful, it's something like 30 to maybe 40% of online retail. That is not, generally speaking, a monopoly threshold percentage. And then the FTC tries to narrow it further with their 
jury rig definition of like online superstore. So what do you yeah. think of the market definition here? Yeah, actually, I think it's a good place to start with this case, because uh, like you said, I I, I think a, a lot will really turn on it and uh, maybe more so than in most cases. But, you know, market definition often a point of contention. It's very much contended here. And so let me start by saying that they define two relevant markets. And I think this is actually really interesting and relevant to the discussion of the appropriateness of it. One of them is, as you said, this um, online superstore market, which seems to basically include Amazon and the online stores offered by Walmart and Target. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a sec, but let me just throw out there. The other market they define is more of a seller facing market. It's a market for online marketplace services. And here they're trying to limit the market to a platform like Amazon that invites third-party sellers to come in and sell their products through its platform and you know facilitates the logistics and the marketing and the user interface and payments and all of that. So there's a seller side market and and a buyer side market. That in, in itself is interesting, as I said, because I'll just throw out there some listeners may be familiar with the Ohio versus American Express case that was one of the most recent Supreme Court antitrust cases that was looking at a two-sided market. And for at least certain two-sided markets said the right relevant market to look at is one that encompasses both sides of the relevant market, the sellers and the buyers, if it applied in this case. So right off the bat, it's interesting that the FTC says these are two separate markets. We're going to look at them separately and we can prove that that Amazon has monopoly power in both and has abused its monopoly power in both of them. Okay, so let's look, let's take the first one, the online superstores market. And so there's a couple of elements there. One is that it has to be online, one is that it has to be a superstore. So how reasonable do we think it is to differentiate on those bases? If you're like me, I, I hate to generalize from my own experience because I'm very unique. <laughs> I found uh, myself doing that throughout looking at this complaint for what it's worth because I like I, everyone hundreds does. of millions of other people's shops on Amazon. So I mean, how can it's, I not? It is, yeah. It's like a, it's an undeniably interesting aspect of this case. Usually it's like, you know, cement manufacturers or something and nobody has any experience with or cares about. Now, you know, this time it's Amazon and everyone knows about it. But I'm pretty sure that that for a lot of products, most people are like me. They've they've bought them through Amazon and they probably bought either the exact same products or substitutes for those products in the grocery store down the street or from some other brick and mortar retailer in their neighborhood. To stir the pot a bit, if we're talking about validity of substitutes, mm -hmm. um, I think that the superstore definition is really questionable because if I'm shopping online, I can just, it's a matter of clicking through to some other website. I can go to the website that's maybe more niche. It's just not that hard. And I'm price conscious enough that I will not just take Amazon's word for it. But actually, I can live with online. Again, going, going to like grossly anecdotal, like, yes, there is a difference between something that sitting here at my desk I can order versus I actually have to get off my butt and drive somewhere. I can think of certain products where I guarantee that even for you, that's not true. And the one that comes most readily to mind right, right away is a television. Let's say I've decided which television I want. I'm looking for 
for price and I care when I get it, but I'm not really expecting to have it this afternoon anyway. And I can tell you from, again, my own experience, I have literally looked at Amazon for a TV and then I look at Best Buy and then I look at Walmart, other sort of local stores. Doesn't that raise the question? So is it plausible that the FTC might be forced to break down its market definition and engage in trench warfare where we're arguing about like over here, okay, uh, self-assemble furniture, kind of a la Ikea, but then we're going to treat that as a separate market from disposable pens, which, you know, I wouldn't get off my butt for. Right. So so I did, I wanted to go there and I'll say, so we do often in antitrust allow products that aren't substitutes for each other, but that are you know, sold through the same mechanism, purchased through the same mechanism, and where we think there's nothing unique about any of the products that don't literally compete with each other, like pens versus televisions, let's say. We think it's okay to treat them all together because we wouldn't reach a different result if we looked at each one category separately. And it's obviously a billion times more administratively efficient to look at them all together. That's not the case here. And I think it's going to be a real problem for them. I think it's an even bigger problem on the on the seller side, but let's stick with the consumer side for a moment. I, I definitely think that people buy TVs differently than they buy office supply. People buy groceries differently than they buy clothing. Furniture, I think, is going to be one where it's relevant. I think it actually, I don't, I have no idea if Amazon will make these arguments, but I think it's hard to maintain that we can treat all of the, the types of products that Amazon sells identically and say that we can identify harm that Amazon visits upon, you know, sort of all of these different types of products because their markets are all fun- functionally the same. It's just not true. Um, and that's even just getting to the online part, which I think is, right. as I pointed out, maybe the harder question. And th- But then if we get to the superstore part, the online superstore part, I really don't buy that for a no. moment. I mean, there's several problems here. First of all, the complaint talks about how Amazon has built something that other people now can't compete with, which is sort of odd, as Farhad well, Manju pointed thing, out. Right? Well, this goes back to what I was also saying on the Google episode of you shouldn't be surprised if a company innovates and builds a totally new thing that nobody has seen before, that for a while that they're, they're that thing. He actually, he wrote, uh, I'll quote it, Amazon all but invented the notion of an online store that sells everything. And it's been building out that idea for more than two decades. It's hardly surprising that it dominates the category it pretty much brought into being. But beyond that, an example that people have been throwing around is grocery stores. And it's true that life is better if you don't have to go to the butcher and then to the farmer's market and then to, I don't know, the dairy and get these things all separate. Having them all in the same place is very important. I need to get my groceries quickly on Saturday morning. I got kids to look after, right? Right. It's not like that on the internet. The internet is easy. I don't I don't need everything to be on one website. It's not important to me as a consumer. That's a good example of, of, of like one of these cluster markets. It might be appropriate to treat most or all groceries as part of the same market and analyze them the same way. But I don't think it is at least not as apparently appropriate to treat, let's say, furniture and groceries the same way. And I think furniture is is, is one of the, the examples I like to use here because part of the argument for the, the superstore market is, you know, people like to get all their stuff in the same place, like you were saying. And, and you know, that extends beyond groceries. I mean, I can imagine you're going and you're, you're buying your groceries and while you're there, 
you pick up i'm trying to think of something that wouldn't actually i was about to say batteries but grocery stores sell batteries but i don't know there might and be something, to be fair know. i've again just done totally my anecdotal experience like there I could know, but, be some right. expert who finds out this is sticky i could think of like totally. sign-ins memberships all there's all kinds of ways to keep people in your walled garden right. so i don't want to be too facetious but no, no that's right that's right but but I, what i am i am quite confident i think it's fair to say that nobody's going and buying their groceries and saying Oh, yeah. Oh, look at that. There's a sofa. Um, why don't I just toss one of those in the cart, too? I've been meaning to get one of those. I just don't think that you buy furniture, for example, in a superstore sort of setting. And if you do, you only buy it with other furniture. And the FTC goes to great pains to say single product sort of sellers like uh, Wayfair would be the, the furniture example. Wayfair is not in this market because although they actually do have a marketplace, lots of different people sell there. They sell a massive number of, of SKUs. I mean, it is, from a furniture perspective, it is absolutely a superstore. But in, in a sense, the FTC is saying, because they don't sell groceries and furniture, they don't compete with Amazon. Yeah. And, and I, actually, I don't think you can, I don't think that is going to hold water. You know, it's funny you should say the, just throw a couch in, because to circle back quickly to the online versus offline, Costco actually does have an element of that. They sell such a crazy random assortment of stuff. Yeah. That there is a little bit of, oh, yeah, I guess I could use batteries. Yeah. Costco, isn't it? I mean, in that sense, you know, Costco also created that sort of market. And you wouldn't necessarily call it a superstore. Like Costco has its own sort of, I don't I don't want to get in, I don't want to get in trouble and you know, somehow define co Costco into its own market as the only seller in its unique market. But I think it's quick you know, Costco it story. Like I live in, in Lafayette, California. Last year in late September, we had a weird freak day where it was 114 degrees Fahrenheit. And yeah. I went in, that was the top out anyway. And I went into Costco and they had the Christmas stuff up in the front and available. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, you know, that's actually another good example. There are a lot of stores, both online and offline, that exist only seasonally and sell only Christmas stuff. Do we really think that those stores don't compete with Amazon? I'm sure you can buy Christmas stuff on Amazon, probably all year round, in fact. Do we really think that those those stores don't compete? Almost on the same margin that the FTC is, is suggesting, they actually do. They actually provide something where they probably provide a selection that's even greater than Amazon's. And sometimes people are looking for that when they're looking for, you know, say, Christmas decorations. I think absolutely people will, will shop in product specific or i don't know what the right word is you know, something category specific that's the right word. stores in competition with amazon relevant to this as well let's not forget that amazon is embedded in the internet it's so obviously it's more convenient to go to one place and search for everything you need and then even come back to that place when you know all of a sudden now you are trying to buy a sofa you know where to go and you basically know how the interface works and all of that but you know what that's true of google too all you have to do is go to Google and type in the name of the TV you want to buy. And not only will you get results that show you what those products are going for on Amazon, but you get all these other sellers as well. It's not like, you know, you have to know, you have to go to each one of these stores independently. And I think the FTC sort of too easily, I don't, I don't recall that they actually mention Google. I think they might, they might actually mention that that sort of searching, searching for a general search engine to be able to access price and inventory at a whole range of stores. They may even say that that's inadequate. I don't see how that's inadequate. I don't think you can ignore that. And that is indeed, again, it's just anecdotal, but that's the way I shop. I suspect it's the way a lot of people shop. Yeah, I think it is 
a lot of what we're proceeding, we're proceeding by anecdote in part because that's what we have. They're going to do, you know, the discovery in this case is going to be insane. I will grant the FTC this much that there's a lot of aspects of this complaint that I think would be pretty hard to kill off with a motion to dismiss because... Oh, really? Huh. Well, for instance, market definition is a very he said, she said situation. Oh, yeah. no, I agree with until that. Until you get I'm into discovery. I'm thinking about the nature of the claims themselves. Actually. Well, let's dive into this. Before we do that, one more anecdote, actually, because we were talking, we didn't pay much attention to the sellers. We'll definitely be paying more attention to them in the concrete claims. I'm sure of that. But in terms of market definition, Brad Stone, it's actually a great book. It's called Amazon Unbound. He talks to a lot of these sellers. And every podcast or whatever I've listened to on this case, they say, well, we talk to sellers and they say that Amazon is so crucial. And I am not, I can't gainsay that. I don't sell on Amazon. I mean, I don't sell stuff. So I'm not in a position to say that that's wrong. I will say that is, of course, what you would claim if yeah. you were a seller and you wanted a better deal with Amazon. It's in your interest to claim that. Yeah. And in Brad Stone's book, when he talked to sellers outside of this sort of self-interested antitrust context, he found a lot of them who, if they didn't like Amazon for one reason or another, was one guy he said, yeah, I got fed up with using Amazon. This was when they were struggling with, they opened up their market to Chinese goods. And for a while there, they had some issues clamping down on counterfeits and whatnot. And he said, yeah, I was having a hard time with that. So I moved my business to Walmart, Target, Wayfair, and Overstock. And you're like, well, that sounds like a pretty competitive market to me that's one last anecdote to finish off our our discussion of of market definition yeah let's let's move to the oh, no, no, i'm sorry i do I, it actually leads to one other i think aspect of this that's important to talk about because i think it helps to understand the the rest of the discussion uh, on the seller side and that is um there are at least two different types of sellers on amazon and I think this is going to matter and i think it's going to again sort of like the cluster market argument we were making with respect to products i think the FTC may end up having to make an argument that it is, is different for the retailers, the resellers who sell on Amazon, who are the vast majority of the, the sellers on Amazon. This is, you know, someone may operate a business out of their garage. They buy products from somewhere. They resell them on Amazon. They hope to make a profit doing so. You have to differentiate that from the manufacturers slash brands. There are entities that sell direct to consumers, that, manu that manufacture all kinds of goods and sell directly to consumers. There are brands like Nike that either have designated, you know, sort of certified sellers, in, even on Amazon, or that do sort of brand management on Amazon and exert some constraints on their sellers. Or you have someone who invented a, like a new shampoo or some, you know, a new product and they sell it directly. I think the, those folks have very different competitive situations than each other. And the people who, who are generally complaining, I wish that people would identify when they say this, you know, these sellers are all complaining about Amazon. Are those the, the retailers who are virtually indistinguishable from each other and who are now competing in a market that's where what they offer is largely commoditized and Amazon has made it so easy for sellers to come on their platform that you may sometimes face competition for, you know, if you're selling toilet paper, you may be competing with 300 other sellers who are selling toilet paper. That's a really shitty no competitive market for, 
literally no, because thanks for pointing that out. That was fun. Uh, that's a you know that's a tough market to sell in, and it's very different. And for and some of the specific things they talk about play out very differently with respect to let's you know sort of throw out there for purposes of our ongoing discussion. There's the the seller who sells toilet paper in competition with 300 other people. And then there's the woman who created a new line of beauty products, and she's the only one who sells. Them. She's in a very different situation than that retailer person. And I have a suspicion that virtually every time you see a litany of complaints about Amazon, it's coming from those retailers, from those essentially commoditized resellers of products, and not most often anyway, from the woman who invented new beauty products and is selling them directly from her garage. Well, in fairness to that woman in her garage, a lot of the complaints in Brad Stone's book do come from sellers who were upset that they would put something that they felt was mm -hmm. unique or new on the platform. And then a Chinese seller would pop up offering the same thing, but you yeah. know, shoddy. And that is that Intel, so to speak, is now actually several years old. And I know Amazon has been working to get a handle on that, but it goes to the point of this case, if it does go all the way through to trial, is going to be the record in this case is going to be so massive. I kind of feel for the district yes. judge trying to parse all this. Well, let's move to the actual allegations. Although before we dive into the weeds, I want to give a few high level comments because, sure. you know, you need two main things in a case of this sort. You need to establish the monopoly. That was us talking about the market definition. Mm -hmm. Then you need to establish monopoly abuse. And at a very high level, there are just factors to Amazon and its operations that make me skeptical of this complaint before we even get into the details. Wall Street Journal, quote, Amazon commands the lowest operating margins among its big tech peers, and the company's retail operations have lost money in seven of the last eight quarters. So this thing where there's some claims out there that they were charging low prices, they got market power, and now they're hiking them doesn't seem to be true. What what when what year was that? The the seven of the last eight quarters. That is an article from a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so it's correct. Okay. If you had a monopolist, you would be expecting to see price hikes that lead to output dropping. E-commerce output is expanding. Amazon, to its credit, it, they like doubled their fulfillment capacity during the pandemic as well. You'd expect a monopolist to be able to freeze out rivals. And we see Timu and Shein making a lot of headway here coming in. You know, it's always the people who come in orthogonally in some expected way that'll get you. Their whole thing is we're going to price it so low and aim at customers who just don't care if the thing, the item doesn't get there in two days. And Lo and behold, that turns out to be a market that they are creating as we speak. Amazon is a notoriously high pressure place to work for, precisely because they're like a bold, lively, innovative company that is not guaranteed success. I am actually still surprised that their bookstores failed. I thought they were going to have all these advantages in like data and book placement and stuff. But nonetheless, it is a... A, a company that is obsessed with customer satisfaction and innovation, which runs counter to so much that is in this complaint. Right. So that's all these high level factors that make me skeptical even coming in. They're always among the top, I don't know, three or five firms in the world spending on research on R&D. Huge R&D spender. Jeff Bezos was famous for having high expectations, but also just having an open wallet. 
their attempt to create Amazon Go, for instance, where there's yes. sensors in the top of the ceiling and you just walk out and they're still struggling to make that work. But the amount of money that they have thrown at that is astounding. And that is their typical practice. So with that, it's just, I guess, background or optics. I don't know how you want to put that. Why don't we dive into these uh, seriatim? Let's start with the, the anti-discounting claim, which I think is, how do I put this? The stronger of two very weak claims, maybe. What's uh, going on there? I'm not sure it's the stronger, but... Um, Interesting. Uh, well, we'll circle back to that, I guess, when we get to fulfillment. Well, oh, I, Go ahead. I, no, I'm sorry. Relatively speaking, it might be stronger. Neither of them is very strong, I guess. So you're right. Exactly. You're right. I think this one is colorable in the way that the other is not, which maybe we can get into, but go ahead. Well, so here, here's where we start to get into um, where I, I raised my hand when when you said, um, oh, these these complaints would, you know, would survive a motion to dismiss. Here's what concerns me about, about that. Neither of these claims is quite the traditional, the traditional antitrust sort of well-understood version of these complaints that, that would normally you know, survive a motion to dismiss. So the the price parity kind of claim, it's not exactly, it's sort of an MFN claim, but it's not exactly an MFN claim. And MFN claims are usually brought under section one. They're usually brought as as agreements. There's no section one claim in this. Mm -hmm. And you find when you read through the complaint that I, you know, I th I think this is true of the, the yeah, it, it is definitely true of the pricing clauses as well. At several times in the complaint, they're they're very careful to say, what we're really complaining about is the interaction of all of these elements. You you sort of can't look at them in isolation. It's really the interaction of them that leads to some, you know, some problem. It's like black box in leads to black block box problem out. That, you know, that that may be true. That's and and to your point earlier, you know, maybe that's such a, a fact laden sort of argument to make that it's going to survive motion to dismiss. I'm not saying that, I mean, everything is well, more you, likely than not. Is one yeah, pardon my, let me, let me yeah. cut in and just lay out yeah, what's yeah. going on here. And then yeah. I've got a question for you. So the idea is you cannot offer a lower price elsewhere. And if you do, we will kick you out of the buy box, which certainly in the case of these more commodity goods is a death sentence on Amazon or something close to it. Importantly, irrelevant for for if you're a seller who sells your own product, that uh, this is this is exactly why I wanted to raise that before. That threat is irrelevant to you. You are yeah, the only exactly. one who sells that product. You don't give a shit about them. You win the buy box no matter what. Yes, so, that's well put. But okay, to, to continue here, that's the idea. Is that we'll put and I think there's also allegations that you might get put down the search ranking. You'll be punished. Yeah. Right. When I read that, my mind, maybe I'm just completely wrong here, Jeff, you'll have to tell me. My mind immediately went to resale price maintenance as an analogy. So there was a time when this is when an up an upstream producer has multiple downstream retailers and it says you have to sell the good at a certain price. And in this case, it's a floor rather than a ceiling. Mm -hmm. And there was a time when antitrust analysts said, well, this clearly must be anti-competitive. It makes the yeah. price higher. And then people came along and said, well, no, there's other things going on here. The uh, producer may want his retailers to compete on service uh, is just one example of the possible pro-competitive things. And therefore, we need to analyze this under a rule of reason analysis. But as, as you and I know, I mean, rule of reason also isn't an automatic win 
for the defendant. You know, rule of reason means, okay, let's do discovery and analyze the costs and the benefits and figure out what's going on here. So everything I just said may be totally wrong, but my read on that is, is yeah, so what's going to have to happen here is they'll go to discovery and figure out what's actually going on. And it'll be all this complicated econometric analysis. And we're going to figure out whether Amazon is actually causing prices to rise elsewhere on the internet or not, and whether there's a pro-competitive justification for that based on the investments that Amazon makes. I, I mean, I Again, where, where am I wrong? I, I agree that that's probably right. I guess what I'm what I'm saying is Amazon can can come in and say, look, this is this is this weird claim that it's it, they're not really saying anything. They're kind of trying to say it's an MFN, but it, it, it isn't structured like an MFN and they're not raising a section one claim. They're trying to say it's some like activity that that yada, yada, yada leads to higher prices. And I agree. There's probably enough of a factual question there that it's going to survive motion to dismiss. I'm just pointing out that there's also a real fluffiness to the the claim they're making that it's not. It's not, you know, it's not something you can look in your, you know, antitrust treatise and and look under MFN and see, you know, oh, it, it looks just like the, the claim in this case or this case or this case. It's a little bit different. That doesn't mean it kills it. And of course, that's how you make new law. And like, I'm not I'm not saying it should survive, uh, fail a motion to dismiss. I'm just saying that it's a little bit weird. What if it is found that Amazon has been upping the fees it charges. The allegation is that it used to take whatever, like 14% cut, and now it takes like a 50% cut and it makes people advertise. I'm in like full devil's advocate mode here. So these fees are built into their price that raises their floor. And then they cause all boats to rise across all of the platforms because now sellers cannot sell at a lower price on whatever, their home website or some other platform. Do you think that's plausible? Do you think that's provable? And if so, that, I mean, that sounds problematic to me, but uh, what do you think? My understanding is the best argument sort of um, in favor of if what they really had was a sort of hard and fast rule, you can't sell for less elsewhere and win the buy box. The best argument for that would be, obviously it's a problem, you know, Amazon is running a platform and obviously it would be a problem for the platform if they are consistently giving the buy box to entities that are selling the exact same product elsewhere for less. Amazon wants to be the lowest price provider of these things. They want consumers to go there because consumers consistently get good service and good prices. If if you could easily find you know, from the exact same seller the, the same product elsewhere, it's very easy to see in that case that, assuming all else equal, that Amazon is not offering the lowest price. So there is at least that sort of justification for being concerned about this. That doesn't mean that it can't be um, also sort of used in an anti-competitive fashion. But I don't think you can say the fact that Amazon cares about what you're selling something for off the site should be irrelevant to Amazon deciding to let you win the buy box to sell it on their site. Yeah, it seems like right? there's an obvious there's an obvious way to flip around the way the FTC has framed it. Because the FTC frames it as Amazon demands you not sell for lower elsewhere. But that's the exact same thing as saying Amazon demands that you not sell it higher with them, which means right. that Amazon is saying it doesn't want high prices and that that's the FTC it. is putting in danger the low prices. And that the lawsuit inherently risks raising prices. 
that is the flip side of the devil's advocate case I just made. I mean, there's also the notion that we've talked about how easy it is to browse on the internet, but Amazon has an interest in lowering your search costs and giving you a reliable ability to go to their website and you're going to get the lowest price. So there's really strong countervailing arguments. Again, I just, on this one, I do wonder if what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to just do crazy discovery and take it to trial and no, I agree. Oh, I agree. I mean, we, we don't have to talk about motion to dismiss. I, I don't think it's particularly, it, Amazon may not even file one. I mean, I, I think it's not particularly likely and and we can just assume that that's off the table. This is going to be a big fact question. Fulfillment by Amazon. And that yeah. leads us into the second claim here. And, and this one I do think is just exceedingly stupid. Let's back up. I think eight, eight or so years. Uh, I may not have that quite right, but Remember, Amazon used to use the same delivery services that everybody else did. And what happened was they got tired of dealing with the United States Postal Service uh, and to a lesser extent FedEx and, and UPS. They Amazon, right? They're the honey badger. They want everything to be going back to the quote at the beginning, you know, religious devotion to the customer experience. So they were trying to get deliveries on Christmas during the rush and not getting service that they wanted. And if the Delivery company screws up the delivery around Christmas. People are going to be outraged at Amazon because people don't really differentiate often. No delivery on Saturday on some service. It was actually this thing where Amazon wanted delivery to be better than it was. So they set out to create their own logistics service, which I I can't imagine how difficult of an undertaking that is starting from scratch. They purchased airport hubs in Cincinnati and probably elsewhere. You know, they have to get a fleet of planes. <laughs> they have to set up a delivery service through trucks, with which they did largely through contractors, but it's like their trucks, you know, their butt is on the line about how that service goes. They set up this entire logistics service. And now, just a few years later, it is already easy to forget what it was like before this happened. I mean, the, the two-day shipping, and in where I live, sometimes it's same day, is so convenient. I was going to say that that same day thing is relevant too. I mean, it's not, it's not even just that they, they did what was being done before better than FedEx and, and the United States postal service. They have since improved so that in many areas now it's same day shipping. That was never possible with FedEx and UPS and the United States postal service. They totally innovated and, and to sort of sing their praises even more on this particular one, this is not like a bits thing. This is yeah. an Adams thing. They went That's out right. into the world and did something physical that is extraordinarily difficult to do. I have been on a kick lately, just really random, but like uh, doing book reviews. And uh, I keep, the publishers will give me like review copies and I keep thinking they're lost in the mail or something because I forget that they, you know, if they don't send it Amazon, it takes like a week to get to me. <laughs> I keep thinking, that, well, you know, where's my book? If I yeah. order it on Amazon, you know, I'll get it in, in a day or two. So that's as soon as I hit send on the button. Yeah. So that's the service that they have created and are now offering to their third party sellers that, you know, work with us and we'll deliver your stuff quickly and reliably and make your customers happy. Yeah. And their condition for giving you prime eligibility. And one of the main aspects of prime membership is the two day shipping. I believe this is now no longer technically required. It used to be contractually required. Now, I think it is fair to say they put pressure on you to use it used their to not be required. Then it was required for the reason you said, because no one else could even conceivably achieve, you know, sufficiently regular two day shipping. And 
since, I don't know, last year maybe or earlier this year, it's no longer required again as a sort of pilot program. And and it's I mean and it's, and in fact even when I say it, it it wasn't true it's always been true all they did was stop taking new customers for this wow. yeah so they're they're te- point but, being they're, they're testing out you, that if, if you can, can do it yeah if you can do it in two days it's fine you can you can use another seller you just have to so I've already gone on too long point being the pro competitive justification here to me is just overwhelming if you want our sort of gold star seal of approval which is the prime badge. You need to use our gold star service because otherwise it reflects badly on us and damages our brand. I mean, that is so straightforward to me. Okay, so here, but here's where, um, now I'll play devil's advocate for a second. Tell me what you think of this. I mean, the this is where you get into the perhaps interestingness, I was going to say weirdness, but let's say interestingness of um, of having these distinct seller and consumer markets. The argument in part is, you just, like you just said, massive consumer welfare, and in that context, by consumer you mean the literal consumers, buyers of product. That doesn't mean that it's a boon. I mean, I think it is, but but it doesn't inherently mean that it's a boon to every seller. The sellers may be finding that, and and make the argument. I don't think it works, but but you know, it's an argument that they essentially have no choice but to use Amazon. They have no choice but to use FBA. They have to incur all of these fees. They, uh, you know, people used to, sell, uh, manufacturers always used to complain about Walmart for this too. Like Walmart had so many requirements in order to sell to Walmart. It was just a, you know, giant pain in the ass, but you had to sell to Walmart. The, you know, they're just too big not to. And they are harmed. And the question becomes, is it enough to say, look, consumers are manifestly and massively benefited by this, even if there is harm to some sellers, maybe, um, I don't know, for the sake of argument, let's say all sellers, should the FTC still lose because of the benefits to consumers? I think there's a uh, there's a couple things in there because you said they have to use it. And if the reason they quote unquote have to use it is because it's just head and shoulders above alternatives in the market and customers will be upset if you take five days to deliver it. And that forces you to use the only reliable two-day shipper in town. I think that's a pretty weak argument. The argument argument is, the argument the FTC would make is, eh, it's more complicated than that. I'm Uh, sure. Amazon Amazon basically predatorily prices its prime. And once, and everybody in the country has prime. And once you have prime um, and you get all this other stuff, you know, for free, but but you also, that's the only way to get guaranteed two-day shipping. Uh, once you have Prime, you're going to only shop at Amazon. You're not going to shop elsewhere. You're tying us back to the first theory because uh, my first question would be, where's the recoupment risk? Sorry, were you not done? Go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I just, uh, I think so. All I wanted to say was, was I think the FTC would disagree with you. The FTC actually says you have to, you as a seller, you have to have access to Prime on Amazon, and it's not just because it's better. It's because Amazon has essentially co-opted everyone into the prime world and uh, the only way to act. And that's where everyone buys stuff because they, you know, once you paid, once you paid for your two day shipping there, why should you pay for shipping elsewhere? So all the customers are there in order to access customers. You have to be on Amazon. Yeah. So a a constant theme of the episode is, is uh, our anecdotal experiences. So 
if they can actually show evidence that fulfillment is just not what it's cracked up to be, that prime two-day shipping is just not what it's cracked up to be, then I think you're right that maybe they're off to the races of at least, at least making a case. But why, until you can you show me... Not, why, I'm not sure why you say not what it's cracked up to be. I didn't mean to imply that that's part be, of the Because... Argument. I don't think they're saying the, it's not what it's cracked up to be. If, uh, if the evidence is that fulfillment you know, they really are the only people who are reliably giving this great shipping and all the other shipping options are inferior, then I find it very, I, I think you're getting any theory that tries to get around that is sort of a Rube Goldberg-esque right. big leafing for the fact that you're just attacking the best fulfillment center in town. And Maybe I think that I'm is wrong. in fact, how, no, but I think that is how the complaint is structured. It's a Rube Goldberg thing and they don't deny that, that amazon's logistics and shipping is the best in town until you show me evidence that it's all a system to force people to use a subpar logistics system i'm not really interested in the fancy pants sort of double bank shot theories personally obviously i'm not deciding the case and remember this is the ftc that thinks the most important way to evaluate the, the right way to approach approach antitrust is to look at how the conduct affects the structure of the market, the competitive process. And they would say, if that really, you know, high quality shipping and and all of these, these attributes that lock people into this prime ecosystem leads to the consequence that no one else can really start up a competing service. And they do make this argument that, that there's not enough shipping being done somewhere else for anyone else to really develop quite as good a logistics operation as Amazon, ultimately you have an abs- a lack of competition in the market. They don't have to show, I mean, they argue that they can show this anyway, but they say they would say they don't really have to show that you're actually ultimately getting subpar, uh, subpar services. You can infer that from the fact that competition has been impaired in the market. Yeah, this goes back to my introduction that at the end of the day, behind this complaint is just a belief in, you know, the old line, small dealers and worthy men, or even more implausibly the, oh, promise, uh, we promise you the world would be even better without this, which I, you know, um, which is totally a castle in the sky. I wanted to circle back because I was also going to say you were talking about the fees being high and you know there's also a possible not thing not. where fulfillment is the best but then it's not just that you're paying for and this ties back to the point of the ftc kind of throwing everything in the blender you could say that maybe there's like junk fees in there so there's the allegation mm-hmm. of the pay to play advertising which i wanted to just mention this notion that you have to put on junk ads and to start off, just again, shamelessly with, with anecdotal experience. So I, I was like, well, is that right? So I spent some time on Amazon and I got to say, I don't understand. Like maybe I'm just missing the products or pages where the ads now take up the whole page. I find it's generally one, two, maybe three items. They're clearly labeled sponsored. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not representative. I tend to just ignore everything that says sponsored because I know they're paying to get in front of me. I want to know what are the first things that don't say sponsored. But again, that's totally anecdotal. What is even more convincing to me, though, is just this so flies in the face of Amazon's entire, not just their business model, but their ethos, the notion that yeah. they would put basically like FU ads that ruin the user experience. Right. Again, this is just all tied together. Where is the overwhelming market power 
yeah. that it would take for a firm to just be like, F you customers. We know you've got nowhere else to go. I just, I fail to see how this coheres, but do you have any thoughts on the, on the ads angle? The place that I saw the, at least I remembered maybe incorrectly seeing this argument that there was, you know, a whole page of sponsored ads. There's an article somewhere that talked about someone searching for a purple wig. So I actually did the search for, for purple wig to see what came up. When I first did it, I saw no sponsored ads. And this is, I think this is relevant. It turns out I have an ad blocker on my browser. And I, when I went to search on Amazon, I saw no ads because I had an ad blocker that was blocking self, you know, ads that promote the site you're, you're looking at, which maybe it's not dispositive, but like the way the FTC sort of doesn't seem to admit that Google search allows you to search between multiple sellers online at the same time. There are sort of self-help remedies here. If that really were a problem for consumers, you know, if you don't like it, you can actually avoid seeing it just by installing an ad blocker. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing is I looked at that search and then I took off the ad blocker and I, I did that search. This was a few days ago, so things may have changed. And like you, I saw only a, only a couple of um, sponsored ads. But the article I remember said something like, it really impeded the ability to for like brands to it started with that narrow example and then generalized to the idea that these ads impede you know consumers ability to get the brand they really want or the highest quality i mean in some ways it's just a long standing argument against advertising at all but i was thinking that's really really funny with respect to purple wigs because i bet there's not a single person in the world no that's not true it's never true but there's virtually no one in the world who cares or knows what brands sell purple wigs. They actually are literally looking for the cheapest product with, you know, enough quality reviews and, and the like, and, you know, being able to be shipped on time that they can get it. The kinds of things that could be impeded by ads in that context simply don't seem to me to be relevant. And it goes again to this question of, of understanding the difference between who is selling and also in this case, who and what they're buying on Amazon. If you're Nike, you may care a lot about those ads. You may also, you may be buying some of those ads yourself. Maybe some of your sellers are buying those ads. You may be buying ads yourself. Uh, you may care if when someone searches for Nike shoes, they see ads for Adidas. I don't know if the consumers do. Arguably that increases the amount of information the consumer has. He thought he was looking for Nike shoes, but it turns out there's a pair of Adidas that are functionally the same that if he doesn't care about the brand. That's actually a good thing for consumers, but that matters to sellers. Again, the seller who's the commodity reseller of goods, I, I don't know why they would care whether there are ads or not, essentially. In fact, one reason they might care is because, again, there are so many sellers selling the same thing. The FTC makes it sound like it's bad for sellers. The, the FTC actually says there was a time once when you could go onto Amazon and you didn't have to pay for advertising. Uh, you just paid your your sell your referral fee, and if you use their shipping, you paid for that or not. And then it was like a level playing field. And now you have to buy advertising because someone else is going to, and if you don't, you'll lose out. Well, again, if there are 300 sellers selling essentially the identical product, I don't see how you're ever going to find your way to the top of the search results other than by advertising, especially if they're all offering literally the exact same you know product and and shipping. Now, they may not always be. There may be the differences there. And then that'll come out in the, the buy box, which is something else we can talk about. 
But I th the fundamental point is, to the extent advertising might matter, I think it matters very differently for different types of sellers and buyers. And secondly, I don't think you can say that the fact that they have advertising now is inherently a degraded consumer experience or even a degrade degraded seller experience. Some people would disagree. Some people would say seeing ads at all is a degraded experience. But like I said, you can put an ad blocker on and you won't see them at all. So is this... Well, and hiding, this lurking in the background here is the fact that Amazon is according to you know multiple studies the most trusted brand in retail and e-commerce right. so you would think that if they were jerking consumers around really badly that would that would cease to be the case right. as is one heuristic there i mean and one, one reason why consumers are, are are likely not to care and again this matter it depends on what product you're searching for my understanding is the existence of an ad doesn't change in any way what goes into the buy box the buy box algorithm is completely separate from advertising. So again, if, so if you're searching for purple wig and you happen to click on one of those sponsored results, it's going to take you to that particular wig. Now there are many different purple wigs that are sold through different product pages. They are technically different products, even though they may look identical to me, but are you looking at the purple wig page right now, Corbin? I, I do not. You can have see, enough. you'll see it's there, there, there. It's, I was doing things like, uh, children's oh. giraffe Halloween costume the other day yeah, for obvious probably, reasons in my family. And it's a, I think it's a similar it's idea. The same kind of thing. Right. So, so if you find a, a wig that looks good to you and you click on it, when you get to the product page, the fact that you clicked on someone's advertisement for that particular wig doesn't change what you see in the buy box. And, and it means that what, and what shows up in the buy box, according to Amazon is the you know lowest price most reliable seller that can get it to you at the time in the time frame you want it, et cetera, et cetera. So it goes to this is has been a kind of a long just detour to say to corroborate your point that consumers, I don't think are having a degraded experience in any meaningful way because of the advertising because at the point that it really matters most to the consumers, they're still getting, the buy box algorithm to determine for them the best price, best combination of attributes for that product. And that's what they really care about. It would annoy, it would indeed annoy consumers if you clicked on an ad and it took you to that, the seller of that product who bought the ad and is selling it for more than others are selling it for on the site or with crappier shipping or something. That would be really bad consumers, but that's not what's happening. And Amazon has no incentive to make that happen. And that's good for both buyers and sellers, I think. It's not good for the seller who wants to be able to sell for more. But I think, you know, behind the veil of ignorance, all sellers would say, yeah, we want a world in which the seller with the best price is the one who wins. Yeah, if there's one lesson out of this conversation, it's that selling commodity products is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Yeah. And actually, going to the topic of two-sided two market, if you are sucking up consumer surplus and operating at high margins to sell a commodity product and somebody comes in and puts the screws to you and sucks that margin out and gives it back to the consumer That's why uh, why is that a problem a great, um, it's a really great point remember i said earlier the claim in the the way the ftc wrote it was this was about advertising that it used to be in days gone by this is not an exact quote but once upon a time you could go to the site, you, you could sell your stuff and, you know, the best seller would win. There wasn't all this annoying advertising and various things as if to say, 
it's it's like a form of nostalgia. The prior time is inherently better than what we have now. Well, that's not necessarily the case. A lot of these various attributes, these various innovations that Amazon has brought to the site actually improve things for consumers and probably for sort of most sellers. But almost by definition, it will harm some sellers who were succeeding under whatever the prior regime was. And if that was a regime that allowed sellers with higher prices who are extracting consumer surplus to win, we don't want them to continue to win. It's an improvement that they aren't allowed to extract that consumer surplus. Nevertheless, they will absolutely kick and scream and say the fact that they are not able to still win the buy box the way they used to shows that Amazon is the one who's extracting consumer surplus. And you can see that now because they're taking it away from the sellers as well. And you have to be really, really wary of those claims. And this is a tale we've been seeing for as long as there's been retail. I mean, you had the mom and pop store on the corner that we all, speaking of nostalgia, think was so great. And they were able to uh, gouge your eyes out in terms of their markup. And then Sears comes along. And uh, the people who are the equivalent of the activists of their time hate Sears because it brings price competition. of the 19th century, right? Yeah, exactly. You had A&P. And then you had Walmart. I'm old enough to remember when Walmart was the big evil thing and we're not talking about them anymore. And it's been this evolution that's been kind of continuous. Well, we've gone quite long, but this weirdly ties in. We live in this world of metrics and dog-eat-dog competition. Oh. Normally, I'd really be itching to wrap this up. But Jeff, your episodes always do so well. <laughs> so we could, you know, there, I have like nine other things on my list. We could do another episode if you want to break it up because there's lots more to say. And by the way, what, how long is this case going to last? It's going to be like two years before. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Rather so than doing be a, a lot of time, two, so. <laughs> I was going to say, let's let the discovery start playing. Maybe we'll do like a halftime report or even yeah. like a first quarter report. That's what would. Yeah, maybe we should yeah, do. Right. But for okay. the moment anyway. now, yeah. uh, let's maybe just talk about, a little bit about uh, remedy before we close out. Oh, and, we, you know. The first question of which is, what remedy? So they during the last rights meeting, so as, as these things go with the government, Amazon meets with the FTC and says, you know, what can we do to stave right. off this lawsuit? And the FTC didn't even give them some pie in the sky demand. They literally just were like, yeah, we're not going to tell you, which to me is just such steaming BS from the government that you don't actually... You're just seeking to punish this company. If you're not even willing to say what you're looking for, I'm sorry, I find that kind of outrageous. So this complaint does not set forth the remedies they're looking for. It throws around the word structural. You know, they, they sort of previews the possibility of a breakup, I suppose. Amazon was able to... Doesn't take it off the table. That's a good way to put it. Lena Khan said, oh, we're just going to establish liability and then worry about remedy, which I find infuriating because if you, why, why, why bother unless you know what you want? What are you seeking? Europe, uh, Amazon had a settlement that they did make some minor, relatively minor tweaks uh, to similar allegations. That's just all table setting. Jeff, what, what do you think of the, the landscape here? I can't remember if we talked about it with respect to, we did, we did. It's a problem in the Google case as well. It's probably a, or maybe it's an inherent problem in all of these sort of platform cases because intrinsic in the, in the theories of harm 
and this is absolutely true in Google, and it's very much so true here, is a sense that network effects and scale effects are part of the problem. Now, you you made a couple of points throughout this episode where where you pointed out things that you didn't use the word scale, but effectively Amazon, one of the things Amazon has done is use its scale to be able to offer quality, a, a quality and price of, of shipping that no one else can match. Partly that is because of its scale. It can do that. It's not, it's also that it developed all of these. To just uh, interject and not to dive us down a rabbit hole of the stupidity okay. of hot docs. But in the complaint, they have a line from Jeff Bezos that's not implausible, where he says, this is not a business model that a medium-sized company could pursue. You're absolutely right. It's not implausible. And a lot of the kind of the, the harm that they're, they're um, alleging is tied up with scale. That's an inherent problem, I believe, because to sort of first order of approximation, scale and network effects are actually beneficial to consumers. They lead to lower prices and things like that higher quality products often with like in, in the case of network effects or higher quality experiences. And yet without quite saying, you know, scale is the problem. The FTC is certainly saying scale facilitates the problem. Okay. The reason this is relevant here is because, and like I said, same with the Google case, probably the same with every platform case, because what are platforms doing if, if not taking advantage of network effects and scale economies? So, you have this problem that if you think scale is part of the problem, presumably any remedy is going to mitigate the effects of scale. And the problem with that is that that means it's unlikely that you would discover a precise mechanism of doing that would, that would remove all the harm, quote unquote, of scale without removing the benefits. So it's really hard to conceive of remedies that don't seem like they're actually going to hurt at the very least consumers and maybe even you know sellers as well, all in the name of artificially f facilitating that medium-sized competitor to be able to compete in a market where, in fact, a medium-sized competitor can't actually compete. So the most obvious example of this would be breaking up the company. I can't imagine a dividing line on which you would break up Amazon and you would actually be able to preserve the benefits of Amazon full stop. You would decimate them. It just boggles the mind to think that there's a structural remedy that would actually be better from a social welfare perspective, certainly from a consumer welfare perspective. And I'd go so far as to say from a seller welfare perspective as well. So what about other things? What about constraining other sorts of things? One example, you know, we, we pointed out that one of the claims here is this, you know, sort of having to use FBA in order to get the prime label, the, you know, to be able to, to sell under the prime label. What if they, they the remedy was an injunction against requiring the use of fulfilled by Amazon in order to, to get Prime? Well, I, it seems I don't know, sort of self-evident to me that that dramatically decreases the value of Prime because it will be impossible for Amazon to, you know, to give that two day or I think in some cases one day shipping promise if they can't exert some some close control over what sort of shipping you're using to, to be able to, you know, how likely you are to be able to fulfill your quote unquote promise to ship within two or one days. It's a how straight up good? degrading of the, of the quality it's, and reliability of the service. It's a degrading of the service. Now, I mean, could you make an argument that some people, uh, some sellers or some potential competitors somewhere would benefit from that? No doubt Walmart would benefit from that. 
you know, Walmart becomes a much better alternative to Amazon if if Amazon's the one who can't do this. I mean, could you identify someone who potentially benefits from that? I think you could. So you could potentially construct a, a, a remedy that benefits sellers. I don't think you can, that, that puts sellers, some sellers in a slightly better position than they are now. I don't think you can do that without also harming consumers. And that becomes, a you know, sort of an interesting, almost philosophical question. Should should that be an appropriate trade-off to make for for under the antitrust laws? Again, if your goal is to benefit small dealers and worthy and, men, right. then yes. And, and under, you don't care about the cost of doing so. Yeah. Yeah. You're certainly uh, throwing the consumer welfare standard overboard. I mean, it seems to me there's three levels of remedy, right? There's some kind of structural breakup, which to me is almost like saying natural monopoly. You're, you're almost saying you're going to be subject to uh, tariff style regulation by the government. Because as Wait, you said- what kind of structure? So, are you, are you mean structural across sort of business lines or activities, or do you mean essentially take half of the consumers and put them here, and and half are in another company over here? What I'm saying is, under any of those options, the government is saying we know what the market should look like right. better than the market does. It's the you know, and as I've always said, I've said this on Truth on the Market as well to our listeners. That is ICLE's fantastic law and economics blog please do check it out. I've said it on there. You know, if the government said, we're great at stock picking, we can make you an investment killing by telling you which stocks are going to go up. What would you think of them? And when they say, we know what the market should look like, we know how this firm should be structured. To me, it's making the same claim. It's claiming to know something it can't possibly know. But let's not dwell on that too much because it's very hypothetical at this point. Right. There's uh, at the other end of the scale, there's sort of bee sting remedies. So like the EU requiring that there be a second buy box. And the notion that you're going to go through three years of trench warfare litigation to get a second buy box, which I don't know, we'll see the evidence will come out, but I really doubt that's going to like change consumer behavior. But that seems like a real waste of resources. And then there's these options in the middle that you've already touched on, you know, expanding eligibility for prime, letting sellers finagle their way out of fulfillment that uh, basically just either degrade the service or encourage Amazon to lower the amount it invests or leads to lax price discipline and literally higher prices, which is the opposite of what uh, antitrust is supposed to aim for. So I don't know. I, I think the whole thing is just a minefield. I'm not surprised that they are not willing to suggest options it almost would be <laughs> comical for them to win the case and then have to try and, and, and come up with it, it would be like the dog company. that caught the car right <laughs> right well what do you do do you um I, I just do you think sort of like i was saying before i agree with everything you said and i also think without putting a huge amount of thought into it that that in particular applies when it comes to these platforms and i i want to say that because I don't think it's necessarily endemic to antitrust enforcement, you know, full stop. I think you could imagine you could have circumstances where if you could really demonstrate that that some activity, some conduct or a merger or whatever is harmful, there's a viable remedy that won't necessarily make things worse. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't mean you couldn't have gotten it wrong, but let's just assume an omniscient decision maker, you got it right. You could actually make things better and there's a remedy that works. I want, I want to make sure, I want to see if you agree with that because what because I think what you describe are 
you know, again, our particular problems of trying to address alleged anti-competitive problems in this, in the, the sort of platform context, I don't think that what you said undermines the logic of any antitrust enforcement at all. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, so it actually ties into what I said at the outset of the monopoly abuse discussion. Show me or or describe to me the better world, right, that you're going to create. And if you're talking about a market where output is dropping and prices are rising, where R&D spending is low, where uh, entrenched incumbents seem to do things that jerk around customers. So like universities, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be a bit snarky. Uh, top universities exhibit all these qualities right now. Okay, put that aside. Uh, heavy heavy government subsidies would be another one in there. Um, it's really easy to picture a better world, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the sort of Jacobin destruction has more of an appeal because it seems more likely that if you break it, something better will take its place. Yeah, good. good now, give me a world or a firm where output is growing, prices are low, R&D is high, competitiveness is high, a firm that is notorious for expecting, you, you know, very high performance from its employees. You're telling me that you can make things even better? That is a huge lift. That is a very different thing you're saying. And that's how I'd kind of put it. I think that's yeah. a good rule of thumb for his antitrust intervention, you know, a good idea. I think it's a good point. And and I think that and and it probably is because in those sorts of markets, often, but maybe not always, it'll be sort of obvious what is impeding the the effective functioning. Maybe it's occupational licensing or some other impediment to to mobility that that um, that allows one to. Oh, here's a good example. Well, that's a side issue that it's often government regulation that creates the concentration in the first place, Right. which which. Uh, is never a remedy in an antitrust case. Oh, oh, there's this hor- this problem. We agree this is anti-competitive. We demand we the court to require the government to abolish occupational licensing to get rid of the red doesn't tape. Doesn't happen. Yeah, I don't want to say that even seemingly simple markets are really simple. They're not. There's massive amount that goes into them that no one sees or understands. You know the famous thing: no one knows how to make a pencil, right? They're all, the simplest market is really complicated, but complicated markets are even more complicated. And the thing with the sort of simple markets is it's probably, you know, you're going to be able to find what is sort of impeding the problem. Oh, I know the example I was going to use was, you know, back in the day before the internet came along, newspapers were doing much better. They were earning massive advertising revenue. Why? Because in many cases, they had effective local monopolies. Because because you didn't have access to competing news sources, your news source was your local news source, and your advertising, if you were you know was local and and it was sort of the newspaper or you know, eventually a TV station, but there weren't many options. That's a world in which you could identify what is impeding, a, you know, sort of a more competitive market. It's the the it may not be something you can do anything about, but it is the absence of competition. It's the sort of geographic monopolies inherent in local newspaper i don't i just don't think you have that here i think i think even if you thought you could identify again some users or some constituents who are in some ways harmed i don't think you're ever to your point i don't think you're ever going to be able to understand 
enough the ramifications of whatever you decide to try to do to help them to actually be sure that what you're doing isn't causing more harm than even the benefit you might be conveying to those particular users. Well, Jeff, this has been great fun. Jeff Manny. Great talking to you. President and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics. I am Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this one, please go and give us that five-star rating and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And while you go do that, smash that like button. Yes, I think you're supposed to say smash that like button uh, for the algorithm guys. Yes. While you go do that, I'll get started on the next one. Thank you all. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.